Matthew 13, 1 through 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And a great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. We live in a world where it's common for people to call themselves Christians. We've seen the surveys and we've heard the news and everything, and yet still, uh, when, when people are asked what their faith is, generally here in the West, they will respond Christian. Now, again, we've seen the results. We've heard 85% of the people in the United States consider themselves Christian. Some people say it's 70%. Some people say it's only 40%. But the fact of the matter is that when somebody's filling out a survey or being asked a series of questions and they're asked, uh, what is your belief? They'll say, I'm Christian. They're not really saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. What they're saying is, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Hindu. Uh, I'm not a Buddhist. So they, they 
purport to be Christians. They call themselves Christians, but they're not really Christians. Now, now how do we know? How do we know when somebody tells us they're a Christian, whether or not they actually are? And we're not supposed to to judge unto condemnation other people, but we are supposed to judge, not unto condemnation, but to evaluate. So how do we know if they are? That's what our parable is about today. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of different teachings on this parable. I'm sure you have too. A lot of the teachings that rise up out of this particular para- parable kind of focus in on the wrong thing. There are teachings that want to talk about who the sower is. Is it is it me? Is it the church? Is it God? Is it Jesus Christ? I've heard a lot of sermons on what the seed is. I've heard uh, this parable used to encourage people to send money to a particular, a particular ministry because there's going to be this return of 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold, that sort of thing. I've, I've seen, heard sermons about what the soil is. And uh, well, I'm going to tell you that this parable is about the Pharisees. It's about the Pharisees. So uh, j- just hold on to that for a while, and we'll walk through this, and I'll show you why. Now, I told you last week uh, that, that when we look at parables, we have to understand the context if we're going to understand the parable. We can't just pluck it up out of the context it's in and make it mean whatever we want to do. We don't have that option. We want to know what God is trying to teach us in this. And so I believe he's trying to teach us about the Pharisees today. Now, there'll be other things in here that we'll talk about, but the primary teaching goes to the Pharisees. And then I'll, I'll tell you why it goes towards the Pharisees. Here's the idea for today. There's glory in the mud. There's glory in the mud. Now, I want to welcome you to church. We're going to talk about mud. And what's going to be really disappointing for you, if you're not ready for this, is that you and I are the mud. So we'll get to that. And so I want to show you one of the points I want to drive towards this morning is that we're all dirt. We're dirt. Now, some of you young people are kind of anticipating this, and some of the older people are going, oh boy, here we go. Okay, but remember this. Only good dirt produces good fruit. The title of this sermon is The Parable of the Sower. This is Stories That Change the World, part two. We'll hear part three next week, and then uh, I'll be on a short vacation break, and when we come back, we'll start with the prayers of Paul. Understand how the book of Matthew flows. It's important to understand the flow of the book so that we can understand the parable in the context that it's in. Matthew is dominated by what we call five discourses. Now, what is a discourse? A discourse, some people in college might hear a lecture. Uh, but what we're talking about when we talk about a discourse in the Gospels is generally a sermon preached by Jesus Christ. So there are five major sermons in Matthew, and they're, they're arranged according to uh, a purpose for, for Matthew to drive towards a point by the time he gets to the end of his book, okay? So the first sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. That's in chapters 5 through 7. And the reason the Sermon on the Mount there is it's, the first, it's Jesus' first teaching, and in it, he lays the foundation for his ministry. He lays the foundation for who he is. He lays the foundation for how the gospel is going to go forward. Now, the second sermon is found in chapter 10. And in chapter 10, he commissions the disciples. 
He's called them, and now he's going to send them, and he's going to describe that he's sending them into a very high calling. So we have the foundation of the ministry. We have the disciples and what the disciples are called to do. This is the third sermon, and this one will define who those disciples are. It will tell us how to tell the difference between those who are truly following Jesus Christ and those who are not. The fourth sermon is in chapter 18, and it gives a detailed description of the attributes of a disciple. Now, uh, again, we've already learned by now, by chapter 18, uh, to learn how to tell the difference between a true follower and one who is not. But now we learn what our aspirations as followers are, the, the traits that we will aspire to as followers of Jesus Christ. And the last sermon is at the end of the book, chapters 24 and 25. And what he does is now that he's, he's laid the foundation, now that he's called the disciples and told them it's a high calling, it's going to be a rough walk, uh, given them a way to determine who's truly among them, uh, giving them attributes to aspire to. He says, get ready because I'm coming back. I'm coming back. So there's encouragement there at the end. Now, all this was particularly important to Matthew because Matthew's written to a Jewish audience. And with the arrival of the Messiah and everything that he brought with him and all the teaching and everything, the, the, the Jews have been waiting for this for just a little over 1,700 years. And they didn't recognize who he was when he showed up. They didn't know who he was. He kept on telling them, but they weren't listening. They, they weren't understanding. Some of them, some of them followed. Some of them uh, became true followers of Jesus Christ. But the majority of them rejected them. And they rejected him because everything he taught called them to think a different way. They had to set aside preconceptions that were in place for 1,700 years. Everything that they had learned and how they had interpreted everything they learned had to change. You know, Jesus shows up and they're looking for a political deliverer. And if you go to the Gospel of John, he shows up at the temple very early in his ministry in Jerusalem. And, you know, everybody's kind of thinking, this is it. He's going to the temple. He'll unite with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they'll defeat the Romans together and, and we'll be vindicated and, and everybody will know that we're God's people. Except when Jesus gets to the temple, what does he do? He cleanses it. He said, I'm not here to clean up the Romans. I'm here to clean you up. So it's kind of like their first hint that things are not going to be the way they think it's going to be. And for those of you that know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know that our walk of faith is not always what we think it's going to be. Sometimes there are bumpy roads. Sometimes there are obstacles in our way. Sometimes it goes fantastic. Sometimes we have to change our thinking based on what we're reading in the Word. And so we've, you know, it's been a tenant uh, here for a long time. Are you going to allow the word to change you? Or are you going to allow, are you going to try and change the word? Well, that was a struggle they were having back in Jesus' time. And Matthew's there to say, you need to allow the word to change you. Don't try and change it. You've been misperceiving it all this time. So uh, that's the structure of Matthew. Let's take a look at this parable. And then we're going to look at how it fits into the immediate chapter before it. The parable rolls out in three vignettes, three scenes. And the first one is the parable itself. It's in verses 1 through 9. And then we'll look at the purpose of the parable, uh, verses 10 through 17. And then we'll look at the power of the parable, verses 18 through 23. 
So let, let's look at this context first because I want you to understand how this parable works, okay? So in chapter 12, the immediate preceding chapter, Jesus has three run-ins with the Pharisees. They're all very revealing. They all have something to do with how Jesus practices the Sabbath, Shabbat, Saturday for them. So in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 12, Jesus is walking through a field. His disciples are pulling grain heads and chewing on them because they're hungry, and uh, they're, they're confronted by the Pharisees who take exception to this. Uh, to the Pharisees, that is working on the Sabbath, and they're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So the next thing that happens in verses 8 through 14, we see a man with a withered hand is healed. And Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath, and everybody gets upset with him again. You're not supposed to do these things on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is challenging them. And what he's challenging them on, what he's trying to show them is in in providing for his disciples, in restoring the withered hand, he's trying to show them that he himself, Jesus, is the Lord of the Sabbath. The whole reason they're celebrating the Sabbath is because of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Sabbath points to the rest that all of us will eventually have in Jesus Christ if we see him as Lord and Savior. So he's trying to show that to them. They're not getting it. So finally, Jesus heals a blind man. And again, they get so upset with him this time, they start calling him names and accusing him of things. And they actually accuse Jesus to be in league with Satan. Wow. Now it's getting pretty serious. So in Matthew 12, 25, he tells them that, well, you're not making sense, guys. You're saying that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. And the demons are going out. Why would Satan cast his own demons out of people? Think about this for just a second. They were familiar with exorcisms, exorcisms were kind of uh, fairly common amongst the Jewish people. They were out there in the culture too, but the Jews knew what they were. And Jesus goes on to say, yeah, well, you know, you've seen exorcisms before. You know how they work. Why would the exorcisms I do be any different than the ones that your sons are doing? Why are you condemning me and not condemning them? They're going to rise up and judge you because all the exorcisms you see, including mine, are from our Father in heaven, from the the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus ends with this. He says in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is pivotal because he's saying, you're not with me. I know you think you're religious. I know you think that you've got all of the prestige of a religious leader and the admiration of the community and so on and so forth, but you are not with me. And in the end, that's the only question you're ever going to have to answer is, are you with me or are you against me? Because if you're against me, you're going to be scattered. There's a whole other sermon in that one. And then he says in verse 31, therefore I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. See, they just blasphemed the Spirit. They said he's doing this under the power of Satan when Jesus was doing it under the power of the Holy Spirit. So they called the Holy Spirit Satan. It's the unforgivable sin, going against what God says. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will not be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. He's 
talking about the Pharisees. You people that just did this are not going to be forgiven. If you continue along these paths, it's going to end bad for you. It's clear that they are not united with Christ. But it's also clear that there is a distinct difference between those who follow Christ and those who don't follow Christ. Then he says this, and, and he's still on this roll, the, the difference between those who are, belong to Christ and those who don't. He says in verse 33 of chapter 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. Now, He's not changing the subject. He says, okay, we're done with that. Let's talk about trees. He's talking about the same thing. And we know he's talking about the same thing because the next verse, verse 34, he says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? He actually calls them evil. He says, you think I'm from Satan? You are the ones that are evil. Later on, he'll say, Satan is your father. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He said, the abundance of your heart is the abundance of evil, and that's what's coming out of your mouth. So the Pharisees are producing bad fruit. They're not only producing bad fruit, they are evil. It's a key point. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. So the Pharisees hear all this, and what do they do? They say, oh, show us a sign as if there's some sign that Jesus could do that is going to change their mind. And Jesus responds with, you know, I'll show you a sign. I'm going to show you the sign of all signs. I'm going to show you the sign that will change the history of the world. Keep your eyes open, boys, because there's a sign coming that is so far beyond your imagination that you can't even believe what it's going to be. It's a sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, and he came out. I'm going to be in the tomb for three days. And I'm going to come out. But I'm going to tell you something. That sign's not going to be enough for you. It's not going to sway your thinking. Then he tells them, they're an empty house. And the danger of being an empty house, that they, they, they thought they were spiritual, they thought they had these things going on, they were trying to practice the things of God, but they're actually empty, and that what's going to happen is because the house is empty, the demons are going to come in sevenfold. Now, again, people will look at this and go, well, there's a teaching in this parable. That's not it. He's just trying to characterize the Pharisees. He's trying to describe the Pharisees. You're so evil that you keep on getting more and more evil. And every time you think you've cleaned yourself up, you've just taken another step towards being evil. You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, separated yourself from the Messiah. So they are not united with Jesus. They're an empty house. Yet, yet they portray themselves as these holy people, as these spiritual leaders, the religious, the righteous ones. And I'll, I'll tell you something, of all the people in Israel that should have understood who Jesus Christ was when he showed up, it was them. They should have immediately gone, this is what the scriptures have been talking about all this time. They told us his name will be Emmanuel. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll be born of a virgin. He kind of fits the bill. And they kept on turning around and going, no, no, no. So they should have known above everybody else in Israel. They should have been able to recognize the Messiah, and they don't, and they don't because they are imposters. 
And we know they're imposters because they're producing bad fruit. We'll get to that in a second. Jesus wants to make sure this is clear. So he draws a line between who his followers really are and who are not. In Matthew 12, 46, he said, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Now, again, Jesus isn't changing gears. He's not saying, okay, we talked about the Pharisees, then we talked about some trees, now we'll talk about family. It's not, this is not a multi-point sermon, okay? He's still on the same track. His mother and his brothers are standing outside, and somebody goes, look, there's your family. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. See what he's saying? It's not about who you were born to. It's not about your, your, your race or what you say your faith is. It, it's not about... It's not about being Jewish. It's not about being born with a Jewish name or being born to a certain family. It's all about who you follow and obey. Wow. Now look, look what Jesus has established so far in chapter 12. He's made two primary points. He made it clear that these Pharisees are not united with him. He said, whoever is not with me, is against me. And number two, he said, the Pharisees are bad trees producing bad fruit. You don't get in God's family by being born in it. You say you are, but you're not. You become one of his children by following and obeying his son. Now comes the parable. And again, Jesus isn't shifting gears. He's beginning to illustrate everything that he taught in, verse, in chapter 12. So we have the parable in verses 1 through 9, and we have this sower. Who is the sower? Well, you know what? We don't know yet. I mean, if we just look at verses 1 through 9, we kind of got to guess who the sower is. Okay, so he's a sower. He's sowing seed. What is the seed? Uh, we don't know. It, it's, it's seed. We, we can make some guesses, but we got to be careful what guesses we make. Uh, because at that point, we're just kind of making up meaning for ourselves. So the sower might mean something to me, it might mean something different to you. So what we want to know is, what did Matthew mean when he talked about the sower? Okay, so we have this sower, we don't know who he is. We have these seeds, we don't know what they are yet. But we do know that when this sower spreads his seed, he spreads it on four different kinds of soil. And so we do know what the soil is. So in verse 4, we see this seeds that are spread along the path. Now the path has been worn down. Uh, it's been compacted. It's as hard as cement. And the seeds that fall on the path just sit there on the path. And eventually some birds are going to come and carry it away. Again, we could make this about what kind of birds are they? What, what do those birds represent? That misses the point. The point is that the seeds never get to grow something's going to carry him away. People are going to step on him. They're going to kick him out of the way. Some birds are going to carry some away. So in, in, in verse 4, we see this, this hard surface. Uh, in verse 5, we see this rocky ground. Okay? A little bit softer, but there's really no chance to grow anything. You've ever tried to plant anything in rocky soil? Yeah, it'll spring up, but it doesn't last long because the roots can't go very deep. 
And that's exactly what happens. The, the shallow roots of the plants that grow up in the rocky soil are scorched by the sun, they die. In verse 7, we see this soil with thorns in it. Now, again, this is softer yet. And the plant does get a chance to grow, but the thorns are big and they're powerful and they overshadow the plant and they generally, they eventually cut it off and, and the plant dies. And then in verse 8, we see the good soil. The good soil. Now, you can imagine what this looks like. You've got a hard road surface. You've got rocks in one area. Uh, you've got thorns in another area. And then there's a little there's a little cutout where there's some really fertile-looking soil. And the seeds that fall in the good soil are healthy. And they produce plants that are healthy. And the plants produce healthy fruit. Now, with that in your mind, I want you to think back to chapter 12. And these, these confrontations that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And they're taught right afterward that a tree is known by its fruit. The Pharisees are producing bad fruit. And here we see three types of soil. And all three types, the first three types of the soil produce little or no fruit from the plants that grow from them. Do you see the parallels? Only the good soil produces good fruit. In verse 9, Jesus says, He who has ears, let him hear. And what he's really saying is, if you have ears to understand, then understand. And that's kind of for the crowd. That's the end of the parable. And you can see the crowd going, what did he just say? What does that mean? Who's the sower? What's the seed? What kind of what are we talking about? Are we talking about gardening here? And, and you know what? The disciples don't know either. Because parables can be confusing. What is this soil? What, what, what is this sower? What, why are we talking about dirt? I mean, weren't we just talking about this? Shabbat a couple minutes ago and what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do and then, then he told us about these trees and then he told us something about the family what is going on here parables can be confusing so the disciples go after Jesus and say what are you talking about we don't get it why are you talking to these people in parables and you could see them you know probably Peter because he's so impetuous they're confused. Why don't you make this clear to them? Why don't you just tell them what you want to tell them? Make them make a decision. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. Well, here's the purpose of the parable. If you have ears to hear, who has ears? Who hears? Who understands? Check this out. The ones who have ears have been given their ears. Verses 11 and 12. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now, follow me here. He's talking to the disciples. He spoke to the crowd. They didn't get it. The disciples aren't really getting it either. But the disciples follow after Jesus. And they say, tell us what it means. And he says, to you who are here with me, you have been given the secrets of the kingdom. To you who are truly following me, you have been given the secrets. To those who really aren't after the truth, they're not over here asking about that. 
It hasn't been given to them. For the one who has, now, and again, here's another one of those verses that taken out of context can do a lot of damage. You know, if I were a prosperity gospel preacher, I'd be going to this right now and saying, if you just give money, you're going to get a lot more and so on and so forth. But for the one who has, more will be given. What's he talking? More what? More understanding, brothers and sisters. Isn't he talking about hearing and understanding? Isn't he talking about hearing and perceiving? For the one who has been given understanding, more will be given. And we need more because the longer we grow in our faith, the more we understand, right? But we're new. The disciples were brand new. They didn't understand everything. They needed some help. Jesus said, well, you're going to get it. You've been given the secrets. You'll, You'll have more understanding. More will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, who has not what? Has not understanding. Even what he has will be taken away. The disciples hear the secrets of heaven. The secrets of heaven are revealed to them, but those who don't pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ have no way of understanding his truth. Verse 13, he says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they don't see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. Now, if we just stopped right there, God would look like a pretty vengeful God. I'm not going to give you understanding. I've decided to give it to this person and not give it to that person. All of a sudden, we become the victim of whatever God's capricious decision is. But that's not, that's not what Isaiah says. So we need to look closer. We need to look in context to see what's really going on here because in, in Matthew 15, he says, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their, their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes, who's closed their eyes? They have. They don't want to hear. They've shut off their, their ears, and they've closed their eyes. You see, they're responsible for rejecting the truth, the seeds that have been sown towards them. They have closed their eyes. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would hear them. Literally, what Matthew's saying and Jesus is saying here is if they'd open up their eyes and ears, I'd say them. So they hear but don't understand. They see but don't perceive. Why not? They close their eyes and ears. Then in verse 16, he said, but blessed are your eyes. Talking to the disciples again. For they see, and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He said, all all of the Jewish history has been coming up to this moment. All of the prophets, all of the, the people who wrote the Old Testament, every character we see in the Old Testament has been waiting for this moment, has been waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, and now I'm here, and not everybody sees and hears. They were waiting for what you are experiencing. And they see and they hear because they follow Jesus. 
They see and they hear because they are pursuing a relationship with him. They are practicing the things that he's teaching. So the purpose of the parables is to show the distinction between those who believe and those who don't. Those who are in the family and those who are not in the family. If you want to understand them, then you're a follower of me. If you're rejecting them, if they mean nothing to you, then you're not. If you want to understand them, then you're in my family. It's not about being born into the family. It's about being obedient to the things that I say. So what that tells us is that a relationship with Christ will not only lead us to the truth, but to an understanding of the truth, an application of the truth to our lives. Maybe not all of it at first, maybe not all of it ever, but far more than those who don't believe, those who don't put their faith in Christ. So just like any other relationship, that relationship we have with Christ takes work. We have to concentrate on it. We're told to practice it. We're told to strive for it. We're, to, we're told to, to attain it. So we've got to work at it. We've got to invest our time in it. We've got to invest our hearts in it. But if we pursue it, if we follow Jesus, we will, if we are seeking the truth, the word of God will move in our hearts. We'll make itself known. Words will start jumping off the page. We'll start thinking about them. We'll want them more and more. And there will be an intangible desire somewhere inside of us to be closer to our Father in heaven. Now, isn't, isn't that what we just saw in the disciples? They're standing there with this teaching, and Jesus walks away, and they want more. They want more understanding. They want an explanation. They want to go a little bit deeper. They want some time with him. They ran after Jesus Christ and asked him. They pursued him, and he gave them the answer. He said the purpose of the parable is to distinguish those who believe, you people, from those people over there that don't. Uh, the parables have the capability to do this because they have power. But we're only going to understand the power if we understand the context. So Jesus lays all this out in verses 18 through 23. He tells them, the seed, the seed is the word of God. And the sower, well, the sower is God. You know, he, he says, the, this is the parable of the sower. I'm telling you, it's about the Pharisees. I didn't make a mistake with that. Uh, Jesus literally says, okay, this parable of the sower, uh, the sower's God, the sower's our Father in heaven, but everything points back to God. All creation speaks of the glory of God. Everything, God, there's, there's only one sower. There's only one God. There's only one type of seed, and that seed is the word of God. There's not a bunch of different gods. There's not a bunch of different seeds. Everything belongs to him. The seed belongs to him. The soil belongs to him. He's God. So it's a parable about God. Ultimately, everything points towards God. But we have to understand that there are nuances in here that will give us application. And one of the nuances we have to pick up is that the soil that is so, the seeds are sown into is everyone. Now, think about this. The soil is everyone. The parable speaks of the seed and the soil. There's only one type of seed, but there are four types of soil, four types of ways that the soil responds to the seed, four types of people that respond to the word of God. The seeds sown along the path are those who hear, he says, and don't understand. They don't understand because they have no roots. They have no foundation. Satan steals the word from it, just takes it away. 
The road is a hard service. And what we see is that the road is a hard heart. Hard heart that will not be penetrated by the word of God. A hard service and it will not be penetrated by this seed. Then we see this seed sown on the rocky ground. Uh, and th- those are those who react but have no depth of faith. And they run away when troubles come. Uh, they, they, I didn't sign up for this. I thought this was going to be an easy ride. I thought everything was going to go my way. And it's not. I am out of here. There is no steadfast belief. There's no commitment. There's no endurance. There's no willing to suffer hardship. So we saw a hard heart, and now we see a doubting heart. I don't think I want this. I don't think I can go through this. So the seed sown among the thorns here are those who hear the word, and they may seem authentic at first. There may be a response to it, and there may be a lot of excitement, a lot of emotion, but the distractions of the world cause them to fall away. They have some roots, but they can't stand against the lures of the world. They might be seduced away by money or by a position or by a home or by a family. So we, we see this hard hearts. We, we, we see the doubting hearts. And now we see the fleshly self-consumed hearts. What's more important to me are, are my priorities, not yours, God. Now, the funny thing about it is the Pharisees, all of the Pharisees that reject Jesus Christ are one of these three types of soil. They're hard soil, rocky soil, or thorns. And we know that, we know that for two specific reasons. They don't understand the parables. And number two, they're producing poor or no fruit. And all you have to do is look at the things that have happened up to this point. Look at chapter 12. And what the Pharisees are producing as far as fruit is concerned is confusion, contention, division, anger, hate, self-righteousness, jealousy. You go right down the whole line. None of them line up with the fruit of the Spirit. It's in Galatians 5.22. So this seed that is sown on the good soil are those who hear and endure in the faith. Those who hang on. They have the capability to produce good, healthy plants that will produce good, healthy fruit that will multiply and spread more seed and stay healthy and keep growing. So the parable, the parable is about the Pharisees. Well, that doesn't help me, John. (laughs) Pharisees were a long time ago. I I don't live in their world. So it's a nice story. And gee, you tied everything together pretty nicely, but what good does it do me? Well, listen. The Pharisees saw themselves as superior. They saw themselves, declared themselves to be holy. They saw themselves as righteous. They heard the word. They received the seed from the sower. And they're producing bad fruit. They're producing bad fruit. They call themselves the children of God. And they're not. They live in a culture where being spiritual, being deep, has a high regard and a lot of respect. But they're spiritual and deep for the wrong reasons, for their own selfish reasons. 
They look good, but they're not part of the kingdom of God. Now, it was important for the disciples to learn this because they were about to be immersed in a world that opposed Jesus Christ, but claimed to be righteous and moral and just. And, and claimed to be righteous and moral and just apart from Jesus Christ. Uh, a world that claimed to be godly, but actually rejected Jesus and rejected his teaching. Doesn't that sound like the world we're in today? People who portray themselves as being of a high moral standard. People who portray themselves as being righteous and for the good of the people and the, the good of the culture and so on and so forth. How do we know if those people are actually Christians? Well, we go back to the purpose of the parable, which is to show us the difference between those who belong to Jesus and those who don't. And we find out we don't come by birth. We come we, we don't come by any earthly way. We, we get there by following Jesus and producing fruit. The power of the parable is to demonstrate to those who follow Christ that the fruit of their lives is the evidence of their salvation. Now, as soon as I say that, we start wondering where, where the fruit is in our lives. And we look around us, we go, oh, well, that guy does this, that girl does that. I was talking to this girl fellow over here and he led three people to the Lord last week I haven't led anybody to the Lord in the last three years I don't have any fruit let me tell you something fruit comes in a lot of varieties and that's why God puts us together as a body we all have a gift we all have something that we bring to this assembly and the gifts that we bring are the fruit of, the, of God in our lives and, and, and let me tell you what that fruit looks like it's, it's not how many people you've evangelized. It's not how many projects you've worked in. It's not how many positions you've held in the church. It's whether or not you have a desire to follow after Jesus. That's the fruit that we're talking about. That's the fruit of holiness. That's the fruit of sanctification, the process of being made holy. And if you have that fruit, that's the evidence of your salvation. And that's the difference between you and me and those who would call themselves holy that are not. Okay? That's pretty good. Let's look a little deeper. The seed that is sown never falls on anything but dirt. Right? Four different types of dirt. But the seed needs dirt to grow there is no non-dirt you know what that means we're all dirt we're all dirt you see that the only question that we have to answer is what type of dirt are we and if we are a believer if we follow him then we have been given the secrets the keys of the kingdom of God. We have the keys to the truth. We have the secrets of the gospel. We have the secrets of all eternity. Now, we need the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to help us to grow and help us to produce fruit. But we're dirt. And all of us here, we're at one time hard dirt. 
or rocky dirt or thorn-filled dirt. We have been changed. We have been transformed. God has changed us into productive dirt, fertile dirt, good dirt. Not by anything we've done, but what He's done. Now, catch this, okay? Uh, and here's the evidence of the transformation. We are dirt that has been invaded, that has been indwelt by what? The living water that is Jesus Christ. You mix dirt and water and you get what? Mud. We're mud. We're mud. But the mud shows the transformation. The mud is the evidence that something has happened, that we've been changed, that we have been permeated with a different spirit, a new heart, new creatures. See, that's the glory of the transformation we've gone through. When people see the mud, they know that Christ is in us. The living water is in us. And the glory goes to God for the change that we've been given by His grace and by His mercy. The parable's about the Pharisees and there's glory in the mud. Let's change. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's change too. Father, we, we thank You for the beauty of Your Word. We thank You for a Lord who would explain these things to us. We thank You, Father, for revealing them to us. Lord, we thank You for giving us hearts that would chase after Him, Lord, that would long to to see these things. And Lord, we thank you for uh, that day that we would stand before you and understand things even more clearly than we do. We look forward to that, Father. We thank you for that, that new heart and that new life you've given us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.